0: Book six, Chapter I. Of the Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book six, Chapter I. An Impartial Glance at the Ancient Magistracy. A very happy personage in the Year of Grace, fourteen eighty two, was the noble gentleman Robert d'Estoville, Chevalier, Sieur d'Abain, Baron de Vries and saint andre on councillor and chamberlain to the King, and guard of the provostship of Paris. It was already nearly seventeen years since he had received from the King, on November 7, 1465, the comet-year, that fine charge of the provostship of Paris, which was reputed rather a signory than an office. "'Dignitas,' says Johannes Lomnoes quae cum non exigua potestate politiam concernente atque prorogativis multis et juribus conjuncta est a marvellous thing in eighty two was a gentleman bearing the king's commission and whose letters of institution ran back to the epoch of the marriage of the natural daughter of louis the eleventh with monsieur the bastard of bourbon the same day in which Robert Destouville took the place of Jacques de Villiers in the provostship of Paris, Master Jean d'Auvey replaced Messire Elier de Tourette's in the First Presidency of the Court of Parliament, Jehan Jovenel de Orsan supplanted Pierre de Morvilliers in the office of the Chancellor of France, Renaud de Dorman ousted Pierre P. from the charge of Master of Requests in Ordinary of the King's household. Now upon how many heads had the presidency, the chancellorship, the mastership passed since Robert d'Estoville had held the provostship of Paris! It had been granted to him for safe-keeping, as the letter's patent said, and certainly he kept it well. He had clung to it, he had incorporated himself with it, he had so identified himself with it. That he had escaped that fury for change which possessed Louis the Eleventh, a tormenting and industrious king, whose policy it was to maintain the elasticity of his power by frequent appointments and revocations. More than this, the brave chevalier had obtained the reversion of the office for his son, and for two years already the name of the nobleman Jacques d'Estovie, equerry, had figured beside his at the head of the register of the salary-list of the provostship of Paris. A rare and notable favour, indeed. It is true that Robert d'Estovis was a good soldier, that he had loyally raised his pennon against the League of Public Good, and that he had presented to the Queen a very marvellous stag in confectionery on the day of her entrance to Paris in fourteen. Moreover, he possessed the good friendship of Monsieur Tristan Lermatte, provost of the Marshals of the King's household. Hence a very sweet and pleasant existence was that of Monsieur Robert. In the first place, very good wages, to which were attached, and from which hung, like extra bunches of grapes on his vine, the revenues of the civil and criminal registries of the provostship plus the civil and criminal revenues of the tribunals of Embus of the Châtelet, without reckoning some little toll from the bridges of Monté and of Corbeil, and the profits on the craft of chagrin-makers of Paris, on the quarters of firewood and the measurers of salt. Add to this the pleasure of displaying himself in rides about the city and of making his fine military costume, which you may still admire sculptured on his tomb in the Abbey of Valmont in Normandy, and his morion, all embossed at Montlary, stand out a contrast against the parti-colored red and tawny robes of the aldermen and police. And then was it nothing to wield absolute supremacy over the sergeants of the police, the porter and watch of the Chatelet, the two auditors of the Chatelet, Auditores Castelliti, the sixteen commissioners of the sixteen quarters, the jailer of the chatelet, the four and fioft sergeants, the hundred and twenty mounted sergeants with maces, the chevalier of the watch with his watch, his sub watch, his counter watch, and his rear watch. Was it nothing to exercise high and low justice? The right to interrogate, to hang, and to draw, without reckoning petty jurisdiction in the first resort, in prima instantia, as the Charters say, on that vicomte of Paris, so nobly appanaged with seven noble bailiwicks? Can anything sweeter be imagined than rendering judgments and decisions as Monsieur Robert d'Estauby daily did in the Grand Châtelet? under the large and flattened arches of Philip Augustus, and going, as he was wont to do every evening, to that charming house situated in the Rue Galilee, in the enclosure of the royal palace, which he held in right of his wife, Madame Ambois de Loret, to repose after the fatigue of having sent some poor wretch to pass the night in that little cell of the Rue Escorcheries which the provosts and the aldermen of Paris used to make their prison, the same being eleven feet long, seven feet and four inches wide, and eleven feet high. And not only had Monsieur Robert Destovie his special court as provost and vicomte of Paris, but in addition he had a share, both for eye and tooth, in the grand court of the king. There was no head in the least elevated which had not passed through his hands before it came to the headsman. It was he who went to seek Monsieur de Nemours at the Bastille St. Antoine, in order to conduct him to the hall, and to conduct to the grève Monsieur de St. Paul, who clamoured and resisted, to the great joy of the provost, who did not love Monsieur the constable. Here, assuredly, is more than sufficient to render a life happy and illustrious, and to deserve some day a notable page in that interesting history of the provosts of Paris, where one learns that Udard de Villeneuve had a house in the Rue des Boucheries, that de Angest purchased the Great and the Little Savoy, that Guillaume Thibault gave the nuns of saint jean his houses in the Rue Clopin that Huguet-Aubriot lived in the Hôtel du Poré-Epique and other domestic facts. Nevertheless, with so many reasons for taking life patiently and joyously, M. Robert d'Estoville woke up on the morning of the 7th of January, 1482, in a very surly and peevish mood. Whence came this ill-temper? He could not have told himself. Was it because the sky was gray? Or was the buckle of his old belt of motlery badly fastened, so that it confined his provostal portliness too closely? Had he beheld ribald fellows marching in bands of four beneath his window, and setting him at defiance in doublets but no shirts, hats without crowns, with wallet and bottle at their side? Was it a vague presentiment of the three hundred and seventy livres, sixteen sous, eight farthings which the future King Charles the Seventh was to cut off from the provostship in the following year? The reader can take his choice. We, for our part, are much inclined to believe that he was in a bad humor simply because he was in a bad humor. Moreover, it was the day after a festival. A tiresome day for everyone, and above all for the magistrate who is charged with sweeping away all the filth, properly and figuratively speaking, which a festival day produces in Paris. And then he had to hold a sitting at the Grand Chatelet. Now we have noticed that judges in general so arrange matters that their day of audience shall also be their day of bad humor, so that they may always have someone upon whom to vent it conveniently in the name of the King, Law, and Justice. However the audience had begun without him. His lieutenants, civil, criminal, and private, were doing his work, according to usage. And from eight o'clock in the morning some scores of bourgeois and bourgeoisie heaped and crowded into an obscure corner of the audience chamber of Embass du Chatelet, between a stout oaken barrier and the wall. Had been gazing blissfully at the varied and cheerful spectacle of civil and criminal justice dispensed by Master Florian Barbedian, auditor of the Chatelet, lieutenant of Monsieur the Provost, in a somewhat confused and utterly haphazard manner. The hall was small, low, vaulted. A table with fleur de lis stood at one end, with a large armchair of carved oak, which belonged to the Provost and was empty and a stool on the left for the auditor, Master Florian. Below sat the clerk of the court, scribbling. Opposite was the populace, and in front of the door and in front of the table were many sergeants of the provostship in sleeveless jackets of violet camlet, with white crosses. Two sergeants of the Pardois aux bourgeois, clothed in their jackets of Toussaint, half-red, half-blue, were posted as sentinels before a low, closed door, which was visible at the extremity of the hall behind the table. A single pointed window, narrowly encased in the thick wall, illuminated with a pale ray of January sun two grotesque figures—the capricious demon of stone carved as a tailpiece in the keystone of the vaulted ceiling—and the judge seated at the end of the hall on the fleur-de-lis. Imagine, in fact, at the provost's table leaning upon his elbows between two bundles of documents of cases, with his foot on the train of his robe of plain brown cloth, his face buried in his hood of white lambskin, of which his brows seemed to be of a piece, red, crabbed, winking, bearing majestically the load of fat on his cheeks which met under his chin, Master Florian Barberian, Auditor of the Chatelet. Now the Auditor was deaf. A slight defect in an auditor. Master Florian delivered judgment, none the less, without appeal, and very suitably. It is certainly quite sufficient for a judge to have the air of listening, and the venerable auditor fulfilled this condition, the sole one in justice, all the better, because his attention could not be distracted by any noise. Moreover, he had in the audience a pitiless censor of his deeds and gestures in the person of our friend Jean Frollo du Milan, that little student of yesterday, that stroller whom one was sure of encountering all over Paris, anywhere except before the rostrums of the professors. "'Stay,' he said in a low tone to his companion, Robin Pouspin, who was grinning at his side, while he was making his comments on the scenes which were being unfolded before his eyes. Yonder is Jehanathan du Poisson, the beautiful daughter of the lazy dog at the Marche Neuf. Upon my soul, he is condemning her, the old rascal. He has no more eyes than ears. Fifteen sous, four farthings, Parisian, for having worn two rosaries. Tis somewhat dear. Lex duri, Carminis. Who's that? Robin Schiff-de-Vie, Haubermaker for having been passed and received master of the said trade. That's his entrance-money. Eh! Hey, two gentlemen among these knaves! Aiglais de Soin, Houtin de Mellie, two equerries, Corpus Christi—ah, they have been playing at dice! When shall I see our rector here? A hundred livres Parisian, fine to the king. That Barberienne strikes like a deaf man, as he is. I'll be my brother the archdeacon, if that keeps me from gaming—gaming gaming by day, gaming by night, living at play, dying at play, and gaming away my soul after my shirt! Holy virgin, what damsels! One after the other, my lambs! Ambois-Lussier, Isabelle-la-Pennette, berard I know them all by heavens! A fine, a fine! That's what will teach you to wear gilded girdles! Ten sous parisie, you coquettes! Oh, the old snout of a judge! Deaf and imbecile! Oh, Florian the dolt! Oh, Barbadian the blockhead! There he is at the table! He's eating the plaintiff! He's eating the suits! he eats, he chews, he crams, he fills himself. Fines, lost goods, taxes, expenses, loyal charges, salaries, damages, and interests, Gehenna prison and jail, and fetters with expenses are Christmas spice-cake and marshpan of St. John to him. Look at him, the pig! Come, good! Another amorous woman!" La La Thibaut, neither more nor less, for having come from the Rue Glatigny. What fellow is this? Geoffroy Mabon, gendarme bearing the crossbow. He has cursed the name of the father. A fine for La Thibaut, a fine for Geoffroy, a fine for them both! The deaf old fool! He must have mixed up the two cases! Ten to one that he makes the wench pay for the oath and the gendarme for the amour. Attention, Roban Paspan, what are they going to bring in? Here are many sergeants. By Jupiter, all the bloodhounds of the pack are there. It must be the great beast of the hunt, a wild boar. And tis one, Roban, tis one, and a fine one, too. Eclay! Tis our prince of yesterday, our pope of the fools our bell-ringer, our one-eyed man, our hunchback, our grimace, tis Quasimodo." It was he, indeed. It was Quasimodo, bound, encircled, roped, pinioned, and under good guard. The squad of policemen who surrounded him was assisted by the chevalier of the watch in person, wearing the arms of France embroidered on his breast and the arms of the city on his back. There was nothing, however, about Quasimodo except his deformity which could justify the display of halberds and arquebuses. He was gloomy, silent, and tranquil. Only now and then did his single eye cast a sly and wrathful glance upon the bonds with which he was loaded. He cast the same glance about him, but it was so dull and sleepy that the women only pointed him out to each other in derision. Meanwhile, Master Florian, the auditor, turned over attentively the document in the complaint entered against Quasimodo, which the clerk handed him, and having thus glanced at it, appeared to reflect for a moment. Thanks to this precaution, which he always was careful to take at the moment when on the point of beginning an examination, he knew beforehand the names, titles, and misdeeds of the accused. Made cut and dried responses to questions foreseen, and succeeded in extricating himself from all the windings of the interrogation without allowing his deafness to be too apparent. The written charges were to him what the dog is to the blind man. If his deafness did happen to betray him here and there by some incoherent apostrophe or some unintelligible question, it passed for profundity with some and for imbecility with others. In neither case did the honor of the magistracy sustain any injury, for it is far better that a judge should be reputed imbecile or profound than deaf. Hence he took great care to conceal his deafness from the eyes of all, and he generally succeeded so well that he had reached the point of deluding himself, which is, by the way, easier than is supposed. All hunchbacks walk with their heads held high, all stutterers harangue all deaf people speak low. As for him, he believed, at the most, that his ear was a little refractory. It was the sole concession which he made on this point to public opinion, in his moments of frankness and examination of his conscience. Having then thoroughly ruminated Quasimodo's affair, he threw back his head and half closed his eyes, for the sake of more majesty and impartiality so that, at that moment, he was both deaf and blind—a double condition without which no judge is perfect. It was in this magisterial attitude that he began the examination. "'Your name?' Now this was a case which had not been provided for by law, where a deaf man should be obliged to question a deaf man. Quasimodo, whom nothing warned that a question had been addressed to him, continued to stare intently at the judge, and made no reply. The judge, being deaf, and being in no way warned of the deafness of the accused, thought that the latter had answered, as all accused do in general, and therefore he pursued, with his mechanical and stupid self-possession, "'Very well. And your age?' Again, Quasimodo made no reply to this question. The judge supposed that it had been replied to, and continued. "'Now, your profession!' Still the same silence. The spectators had begun, meanwhile, to whisper together and to exchange glances. "'That will do,' went on the imperturbable auditor, when he supposed that the accused had finished his third reply. You are accused before us, primo, of nocturnal disturbance, secundo, of a dishonourable act of violence upon the person of a foolish woman. Improjudicium Metricus Tertio, of rebellion and disloyalty towards the arches of the police of our Lord the King. Explain yourself upon all these points. Clerk, have you written down what the prisoner has said thus far? At this unlucky question, a burst of laughter rose from the clerk's table, caught by the audience, so violent, so wild, so contagious, so universal, that the two deaf men were forced to perceive it. Quasimodo turned round, shrugging his hump with disdain, while Master Florian, equally astonished, and supposing that the laughter of the spectators had been provoked by some irreverent reply from the accused, rendered visibly to him by that shrug of the shoulders, apostrophized him in dignity. "'You have uttered a reply, knave, which deserves the halter. Do you know to whom you are speaking?' This sally was not fitted to arrest the explosion of general merriment. It struck all as so whimsical and so ridiculous that the wild laughter even attacked the sergeants of the parois-a-bourgeois a sort of pikeman, whose stupidity was part of their uniform. Quasimodo alone preserved his seriousness, for the good reason that he understood nothing of what was going on around him. The judge, more and more irritated, thought it his duty to continue in the same tone, hoping thereby to strike the accused with a terror which should react upon the audience and bring it back to respect. So. This is as much as to say, perverse and thieving knave that you are, that you permit yourself to be lacking in respect towards the Auditor of the Châtelet, to the magistrate committed to the popular police of Paris, charged with searching out crimes, delinquencies, and evil conduct, with controlling all trades and interdicting monopoly, with maintaining the pavements, with debarring the hucksters of chickens, poultry, and waterfowl, of superintending the measuring of faggots and other sorts of wood, of purging the city of mud and the air of contagious maladies, in a word, with attending continually to public affairs, without wages or hope of salary. Do you know that I am called Florian Barbadian, actual lieutenant to Monsieur the Provost, and, moreover, commissioner, inquisitor, controller, and examiner, with equal power in provostship, bailiwick, preservation, and inferior court of judicature. There was no reason why a deaf man talking to a deaf man should stop. God knows where and when Master Florian would have landed, when thus launched at full speed, in lofty eloquence, if the low door at the extreme end of the room had not suddenly opened, and given an entrance to the provost in person. At his entrance, Master Florian did not stop short, but making a half turn on his heels, and aiming at the provost the harangue with which he had been withering Quasimodo a moment before, Monseigneur, said he, I demand such penalty as you shall deem fitting against the prisoner here present for the grave and aggravated offence against the court and he seated himself, utterly breathless, wiping away the great drops of sweat which fell from his brow and drenched, like tears, the parchment spread out before him. Monsieur Robert d'Estovie frowned and made a gesture so imperious and significant to Quasimodo that the deaf man in some measure understood it. The provost addressed him with severity. "'What have you done that you have been brought hither, knave?' The poor fellow, supposing that the provost was asking his name, broke the silence which he habitually preserved, and replied, in a harsh and guttural voice, "'Quasimodo!' The reply matched the question so little that the wild laugh began to circulate once more, and M. Robert exclaimed, red with wrath, "'Are you mocking me also, you errant knave?' "'Bell-ringer!' of Notre-Dame," replied Quasimodo, supposing that what was required of him was to explain to the judge who he was. "'Bell-ringer!' interpolated the provost, who had waked up early enough to be in a sufficiently bad temper, as we have said, not to require to have his fury inflamed by such strange responses. "'Bell-ringer! I'll play you a chime of rods on your back through the squares of Paris!' Do you hear, knave?" "'If it is my age that you wish to know,' said Quasimodo, "'I think that I shall be twenty at St. Martin's Day.' This was too much. The provost could no longer restrain himself. "'Ah! You are scoffing at the provostship, wretch! Messieurs the sergeants of the mace! You will take me, this knave, to the pillory of the Greve. You will flog him and turn him for an hour. He shall pay me for it, tete dieu. And I order that the present judgment shall be cried, with the assistance of four sworn trumpeters, in the seven castellanies of the Vicomte of Paris. The clerk set to work incontinently to draw up the account of the sentence. Ventre deux. "'Tis well adjudged!' cried the little scholar, Jehan Frollo de Moulin, from his corner. The provost turned, and fixed his flashing eyes once more on Quasimodo. "'I believe the knave said ventre Dieu. Clerk, add twelve deniers Parisian for the oath, and let the vestry of Saint Eustache have the half of it. I have a particular devotion for Saint Eustache. In a few minutes the sentence was drawn up. Its tenor was simple and brief. The customs of the provostship and the vicomte had not yet been worked over by President Thibaut Bellet and by Roger Barnet, the King's advocate. They had not been obstructed, at that time, by that lofty hedge of quibbles and procedures, which the two jurisconsults planted there at the beginning of the sixteenth century. All was clear, expeditious, explicit. One went straight to the point then, and at the end of every path there was immediately visible, without thickets and without turnings, the wheel, the gibbet, or the pillory. One at least knew whither one was going. The clerk presented the sentence to the provost, who affixed his seal to it, and departed to pursue his round of the audience hall in a frame of mind which seemed destined to fill all the jails in paris that day jean frollo and robin pospin laughed in their sleeves quasimodo gazed on the whole with an indifferent and astonished air however at the moment when master florian barbedien was reading the sentence in his turn before signing it the clerk felt himself moved with pity for the poor wretch of a prisoner and in the hope of obtaining some mitigation of the penalty he approached as near the auditor's ear as possible, and said, pointing to Quasimodo, "'That man is deaf!' He hoped that this community of infirmity would awaken Master Florian's interest in behalf of the condemned man. But in the first place we have already observed that Master Florian did not care to have his deafness noticed. In the next place he was so hard of hearing that he did not catch a single word of what the clerk said to him. Nevertheless he wished to have the appearance of hearing, and replied, Ah! Ah! That is different! I did not know that! An hour more of the pillory in that case! And he signed the sentence thus modified. "'Tis well done," said Robin Puspan, who cherished a grudge against Quasimodo. That will teach him to handle people roughly. End of Book 6, Chapter 1